Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We've touched on this subject a couple of times about how you're deathly afraid that I'm going to walk in on you while you're pooping. Mm, Or Uh, see my poop after I've left the room. Right. Um, I think that we, this weekend, we reached a whole new level because occasionally we will take audio notes so we can remember things Mm. we can talk about. This is an audio note that I took uh, Saturday night. Cat admitted to me that she checks find a friend before she poops. You check, you check the app Find a Friend to make sure I'm not anywhere in the vicinity. Yeah, like in the neighborhood. Right. Before you go into the into the bathroom. Yeah, if you're in our town, I won't. <laughs> I won't. Do Let's, it with the door open. Can we can we explore that a little bit? Why why do you why are you so fearful that I am going to discover that you actually defecate? I don't mind that you know. I just don't want you seeing it or being anywhere near it. You don't want there to be any evidence. Well, no. I hope that most people don't want there to be evidence. Yeah. So we got some good audio from this weekend. (laughs) We had a couple of celebratory nights Mm. uh, and had a few uh, fancy cocktails. And we'll play you some of the clips of uh, the audio from that evening at some point. Uh, Once I figure out what the hell we were talking about. We were um, at the uh, bar at the hotel we were staying at, which, by the way, we met a a lovely bartender while we were down there. I can't remember her name. Michaela. Michaela. I was going to say Kayla, and then I was like, no, I misheard her, and Mm. you corrected me. So, okay, Michaela. And uh, we were talking to her about how we came down to uh, Portland to, to check out some museums and nothing was open. <laughs> yeah, we, w- we went to Portland to see the Cryptozoology Museum yeah. and that wasn't open. Yeah. So our second choice was the Umbrella Cover Museum. Yeah, I'd rather not talk about that too much though because I'm probably going to cover it at some point. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a museum <laughs> for covers for umbrellas. Any hoozle, um, here, I, I got something for you. Are you ready? Yes, please. Okay, 3,000 years ago, His voice fell silent. He died in around 1100 BC. He was a priest 
an incense bearer and a scribe. Uh, after he died, his body, of course, was preserved, mummified, and entombed, ready for the afterlife. His name was Nessie Amun. Nessie Amun. Nessie Amun. Now, we've been watching a lot of Egypt stuff at night before bedtime, and I am shocked at how much information is coming (laughs) out and as new. It's like, I feel like I've watched so many hours of Egypt stuff that new stuff shouldn't be showing up still. Yeah. But it's constant. It's all the time. Well, it's like Tutankhamun. Oh, Jesus. I've never in my life felt more stupid than when I discovered that there is a freaking onk in his name. <laughs> to- and that's why it's Toot Onk Amun. Um, uh, it's Amun, like this. Nessie Amun and Toot Onk Amun. Yeah. Well, we just run it all together. Yeah, we all run it together. But also, when I was in school, I was taught it was Toot and Common. Toot and Common. So, I mean, yeah. that's not. I mean, it's not entirely my fault. So Nessie Amun's mummy remained there uh, in in its uh, coffin for 3,000 years until 1823, when a guy named M.J. Pasaloqua, who called himself an antiques dealer, but really was just a grave robber, Mm. um, found it along with some other mummies, and he, uh, you know, sold them. That's what he was doing. He sure. was he was raiding Egyptian tombs and selling the contents. Big business those days. So that mummy, Nessie Amun, along with two other mummies, were sold to Leeds City Museum in northern England. They stayed there for quite some time. Uh, well, actually, in, in uh, the uh, early 1940s, the museum got bombed during World mm. War II, and two of the mummies were destroyed. Mm. But Nessie Amun survived. Soon after the mummy arrived at Leeds Museum, initially, members of the society began an autopsy on the mummy. So they removed the two, it was in two coffins. They removed the coffins. Then they began to unwind the linen wrappings. And they discovered there were about 40 layers of linen wrapping the mummy. The outer wrappings were Excellent quality linen, really good quality stuff. It was finely woven, very narrow strips. But as they unraveled the mummy, the linen became coarser and wider and cheaper. They put all the cheap crap on the inside. Sure, of course. Yeah. So between the wrappings, which is not uncommon, they found uh, jewels Mm -hmm. and ornaments of various types. The last layer of bandages... Uh, they they pulled it off and they still could not see Nessie Amun's face because there was about an inch layer of spices that had been placed over the skin. They poured about an inch of spices over a him. A nice dry rub. Yeah, a nice. <laughs> hmm, yeah. I've been watching a lot of diners, drive-ins, and dives. So. Yeah, yeah. It's either that or Egyptian documentaries <laughs> at night. My interests are varied. They also filled the mummy's abdomen and chest cavities with the spices, and uh, his mouth was stuffed with sawdust so that his face could retain its natural shape. Mm -hmm. Now, on that day in 1828, when they're pulling this last layer of bandages off him and revealing the spices, the team could smell cinnamon in the air as they removed that last layer. Oh my gosh, that's so weird. I love it. The spices were removed, And then they saw the body for the first time, Mm -hmm. the body of a priest. His head, his eyebrows, and his beard had been shaved 
His skin was gray, but it was in good condition, and one of the autopsy team members reported it as soft and greasy to the touch. So the team conducted the most careful autopsy that they could at the time, Mm -hmm. because this was the early 1800s. What they determined was that uh, he had been mummified using a classic form of Egyptian mummification. Uh, He had the classic slit on the left side that the internal organs had been removed from. Mm -hmm. They had been placed in uh, natron, which is salt and baking powder, essentially, uh, which dried them all out. They were put in packages, they were packeted up, and then replaced in the abdomen. So this is a pretty common thing. Right. They also found that his brain had been removed through his nose with a hook, which blows my mind every time I hear that. But the weird thing they discovered was that Nessie Amun's tongue was sticking out of his mouth. Banjo style? (laughs) Just like banjo. (laughs) Normally, the mummy's mouths are closed, but this mouth was open and his tongue was protruding. And they'd only seen that one other time in all of recorded history of uh, finding mummies. No one could decide what this was all about. And they couldn't really determine what he had died from. So they thought maybe the two were connected. They did determine that he was somewhere in his 50s, they thought. So this was from a 1928 autopsy. You know, they didn't have all the answers. Uh, They were still learning. Uh, 160 years later, after the first autopsy, they conduct another one. And of course, medical science had advanced greatly. Yeah. Um, And it's nice that that's something that you have an option with, with mummies, that you don't have with like everyday corpses. True. Yeah. Mummy's going to stick around a little longer. Mm-hmm. So they, they decided to take another look at the, at the mummy's tongue to figure out why it was sticking out of his mouth. They considered a couple of possibilities. One, maybe Nessie Amun had a tumor. Uh, perhaps he had been strangled. Oh, is the third option that he fucked off and died? No, the third option was that uh, perhaps he had been stung on the tongue by a bee. Oh, got it. And he had some sort of sort of an allergic reaction and choked to death. Mm-hmm. They the team ruled out the first two possibilities. And even though they couldn't definitively determine the cause of death, they thought the most likely cause was he had been stung on the tongue and had you know went into anaphylactic shock and uh, choked to death. That sounds terrible. So for nearly 200 years since his discovery, his remains have been on display at Leeds City Museum in northern England. Nessie Amun is considered to be one of the most remarkable mummies in Britain, not just because of the incredible state of preservation that he's in, with the exception of his tongue, which, by the way, had fallen off. Oh. When they tried to dry him out initially, when he was being embalmed, his tongue snapped off and they, they glued it back in. Oh, the the no. embalmers did, yeah. Yeah. But they also have learned quite a bit from the inscriptions on Nessie Amun's coffins and the objects that were left behind. They were able to determine by a leather ornament inside the bandages uh, that he was wrapped in that he died in the reign of Ramesses VI, who ruled in Egypt between 1113 and 1085 BC. Nessie Amun was a priest in the Temple of Amun in the Karnak complex at Thebes, which is modern-day Luxor. Karnak in Thebes, that complex, I didn't realize this, but in researching, I found out that uh, it employed at its peak over 80,000 people worked in the Karnak 
complex. That's huge. And the temple of Amun. Nesi Amun means the one that belongs to Amun. Amun was a very important Egyptian god. And of course, Tutankhamun also worshipped the god. And his name meant living image of Amun. Mm-hmm. Now, it's got an onk in it. It does have an onk That's in it. why it yeah. sounds like Tutankhamun. <sighs> Nesi Amun was a wab priest, which meant that uh, he had reached a certain level of purification. He could go into the innermost, holiest parts of the temple. <laughs> Sorry, he was a wab priest? A, wa- a wab, no, oh. not a wab priest. Oh. That's a whole different religion. if he was religion. going into the most holy parts, you know, that would make yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? A macaroni in a pot. <laughs> Any hoozle. He was permitted to approach the statue of a moon in the most sacred inner parts of the temple, according to oral tradition. But since he was a high-ranking priest and a scribe at the temple, uh, his job was to bring incense into the inner sanctum. Also, uh, he would uh, honor the god Amun with song and incantations. Oh, okay. With all the incense going into the inner parts of the temple, it's mm-hmm. starting to sound like a My Vagina Steaming episode. <laughs> So they determined that he was probably somewhere in his 50s, that he had died of a severe allergic reaction. Um, His teeth were worn down. Well, that's not uncommon Mm. for people who lived during this period because sand would get into their food and it would grind their teeth down over time. I didn't know that. That's terrible. I do not like that. One inscription on his coffin said that, Nessie Amun hoped that his soul would one day speak again so the gods could hear him. A new study published in the journal Scientific Reports fulfills the 3,000-year-old priest's vision, drawing on CAT scans of his surprisingly intact vocal track. They've been able to 3D print his voice box and bring his voice back from the dead. Whoa. For 3,000 years, no one's heard what his voice sounded like. The team of researchers have brought it back to life. They did it by producing a 3D printed voice box based on Nessie Amun's vocal tract, which was scanned to establish its precise dimensions, according to Smithsonian Magazine. By using the vocal tract with an artificial larynx sound, they synthesized a vowel sound, which they said should be similar to to the voice quality of Nessie Amun. Wow. Now, this is, they believe, the very first project of its kind to successfully recreate the voice of a dead person through artificial means. That is the coolest thing. The soundbite, created with a speech synthesizing tool called the vocal tract organ, uh, reconstructs, reconstructs the sound that would have come out of the vocal tract as if he was lying in his coffin and his larynx came to life again. Based on his position, mm-hmm. okay. it affects, of course, how the, the voice would sound. Also, it doesn't take into consideration um, the resonance of the head or the flesh that would surround mm-hmm. the voice box. So it's not exact, of course. But they think that they could input all of this information and overcome these obstacles by modifying their software to better approximate 
factors like the size of the priest's tongue and the way his head would vibrate it, you know, Mm -hmm. and the position of his jaw. The team's eventual goal is to move beyond a singular vowel sound to words and even full sentences. That is a nutty concept, but it totally makes sense that that it could be recreated. It could be. They have all of the... uh, the parameters, mm-hmm. they can input all of that. They can make the adjustments necessary based on the size of, you know, all of that stuff. And pretty accurately, they think, recreate his voice. He could speak full sentences again after being dead for 3,000 years. Wow. Archaeology professor John Schofield, um, he told the BBC that it was... He reminded, he reminded the BBC that it was Nessie Amun's express wish to be heard right. in the afterlife, which was part of his religious belief system. Quote, it actually is written on his coffin. It was what he wanted. In, in a way, we've managed to make that wish come true. That's pretty incredible. So I have the sound. I have the sound, too. <laughs> no, that's... That's the WAP priest, not the WAB priest. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right. Okay, here's here's the sound. Oh, that, no. Wait, sorry. That was the wrong file. That was from the 1999 Brandon Fraser Hollywood classic, The Mummy. Um, this is actually the sound. Nowhere near as impressive, but here it is. Sounds like a fart. His voice would be somewhere in this. Sounds like he's really not impressed. <laughs> what do you think of that uh, fettuccine Alfredo? <laughs> do, do you want to watch a movie tonight? Mm, you never, never want to do, do anything. anything. And now, that thing in the middle. All right, that thing in the middle. This time, uh, just a random audio note that we, we, we recorded over the weekend while we were drinking. <laughs> There's like five of them here. I'm just going to push one at random. Okay. You bit your lip. Where? Where? Show me. Uh-huh. 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 Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Look at this. Look, right here. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible. I when know. did you do that? Last night, eating, oh. eating pad thai. Oh, my goodness. When did you bite your lip? Oh, today when I was complaining about the rain. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same side. It's so weird. It's, it's right the exact in the same, same spot. Same spot. It's so weird. Because it's like right on the bottom, right here. Yeah. And that's right where yours is. Yeah. (gasps) yeah. So weird. It was last night when I did it, and I was really embarrassed. So, and we didn't have any napkins Mm -hmm. in the in the hotel room. So I like I dabbed a washcloth on my lip, and so that's why there's blood on the washcloth. Oh my goodness. Blood on the washcloth. Yeah. No, I just um, I just drank the blood like I do with my enemies. cause of my injury was I was complaining about the rain. <laughs> like, old man shakes fists at clouds. God. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And apparently I was being a little too enthusiastic about my pad thai. <laughs> well, that's understandable. Ooh, yeah, it was good. Did you know if your dog eats half a box of milk chocolates, you can get it to throw up by giving it a tablespoon of hydrogen peroxide? Want to see photos of what happens? This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece if you put your pants on i'll give you some fresca and when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right it's a lot easier to manage them Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Oh my goodness. Okay, so this just came in um, to our email curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hey, Mama and Papa Freak. I'm so excited and I had to get this out ASAP. I was listening to the latest Boo where Haggis's DNA results were revealed. When Jethro announced that Haggis is part Shih Tzu and part Pekingese, I thought of my own dog whose DNA results I had also received through Embark. Although my dog is a Chinese village dog, most of his DNA relatives turn out to be either Shih Tzus or Pekingese. It seems that the village dogs in this region of Asia went on to be domesticated and become those breeds. Anyway, I just received an email from Embark saying my dog had new DNA relatives and one of them turns out to be Haggis. Oh, my God. I about <laughs> lost my damn mind. Wow. Just a fun little thing that brightened my day, and I wanted to share. I adopted my dog, Shopkeep, while doing a year-long stint of teaching in China. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. That's so amazing. Wow. It really is one big family. This freak family is just one big family. Shopkeep has two new relatives, Haggis. <laughs> it's one of them. Wow. Amazing. Oh, that is so great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Who sent that to us? Alan. Or All In. I'm not sure. A-L-L-Y-N. I like the way it looks, even though I don't it's know very, how it sounds. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know it doesn't sound like this. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. I'm looking. I'm pulling it up on my end right now. <laughs> That's so funny. That's unreal. I can't even... I'm just so excited right now. <laughs> Plus, how cool that you were able to adopt a dog from China. Mm. Okay, I know you're excited. I know you're excited, but yeah. uh, what you got for me? What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I discovered the other day that there are more than 200 species of anglerfish. And I didn't know that. I thought, wow, 200 species, that's that's a lot. And uh, so I thought I'd look into it a little bit more. And anglerfish are varied and interesting and incredible and weird. Now, anglerfish, is that the fish that has the weird thing that comes out of its head? Because that, that freaks me out. That is like the creepiest, scariest fish I have ever seen a picture of. Well, what you're thinking of is a very specific type of anglerfish. And like I said, there are tons of anglerfish. So we're going to talk about it. Basically, anglerfish, they have a wide range of body forms. They can be kind of spherical. They can be laterally compressed or dorsoventrally depressed. They are divided into four groups. Batfish, goosefish, frogfish... <laughs> And deep sea anglers. That's the one that freaks me out. So the deep sea angler. But there are several types of deep sea angler also. So okay. I mean, whew, right. I just think it's funny that the other ones are just named after other things. <laughs> like, what are we going to call this? I don't know, frogfish. Frogfish. What yeah. about this one? <sighs> Batfish. Uh, what are we up to? Geez, goose, goosefish. Yeah. What about this one? Uh. <laughs> 
Anyway, a mitochondrial genome phylogenetic study suggested that anglerfishes diversified in a short period of the early to mid-Cretaceous period between 130 and 100 million years I ago. I had no idea. That's these are these are oftentimes very deep sea fishes, and they roam about in parts unknown. Um, they like to hang out in that part of the ocean oftentimes that gives me that feeling when we're on cruises right so uh the they vary in so many ways but one of the things that they usually have in common is that their head and mouth are very large Uh, most of them live in the murky depths as i said of the atlantic and antarctic oceans up to a mile below the surface how does something survive a mile below the surface it's crazy blows my mind they've got special uh features so that they can handle the pressure and uh in these cases well we're gonna get into it okay okay So anglers are named for their method of fishing for their prey, like the thing that you just discussed. The uh, foremost part of their spine is located on their head. It's actually part of their spine. And it kind of loops out over their head like a fishing rod. And it's tipped with fleshy bait. And it's often bioluminescent. So they are brightly colored and they light up and they're like, look at me. Look at how fleshy and brightly colored I am. Yeah, it looks like an LED light. It's like some sort of high-tech fishing lure. Exactly. So prey fishes are attracted to this lure. They get close enough for the angler fish to swallow them. Deep sea anglers prey on lots of fish and invertebrates, and most species can open their mouths wide enough to devour their prey whole using their needle-like teeth, not only as daggers, but kind of like bars of a cage because some of them can open their jaws and their stomachs so wide that they trap victims much larger than themselves. So I am I'm going to have nightmares <laughs> tonight. I mean just the picture of these fish, yeah. this particular one, uh, the deep sea angler, horrifies me. But the idea that it can eat something that's larger than itself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their teeth help keep those creatures in. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it looks like, looks like jail bars. Yeah. When an anglerfish suddenly opens its giant mouth, there's actually a resulting suction event that happens that will pull in the victim, um, which is a scary thought all in its own. Mm. And after the jaw closes, the teeth on <laughs> there are small teeth on the floor of the mouth that kind of like conveyor belt the food down oh into their stomach. God. <laughs> my my butthole just went Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty neat. So, uh, but it's only the ladies that do the fishing. So in all deep sea anglers, the males are much smaller than the females. Hmm. And in these species, males might be several orders of magnitude smaller than the females. So like, not just a little smaller, different looking enough so they don't even seem like they're the same species. Do the females eat the men? No. The Actually, hmm. something interesting and kind of the opposite happens. So... The the males don't have that angling apparatus. They're very small. They don't have the angling apparatus. But it's not to say that some don't figure out their own way of making it work. They take part in what's called sexual parasitism. Parasitism. Microscopy. 
So in these species, the male attaches himself by biting the female, and then the mouth fuses with her skin, and the bloodstreams of the two fish become connected. And from that point on, the male is totally dependent on the female for nourishment, and he just kind of becomes a sperm-producing parasite at that point. Wow. Yeah. That's his sole purpose in life. That's all he does. All he does. Yeah. I mean, I've met some guys like that, (laughs) but um, JK, JK. Uh, so <laughs> present company excluded, I hope. Uh, <laughs> likewise, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. sure. Uh, a few years ago, a team uh, working at the Max Planck Institute started studying these fish because the ladyfish doesn't reject the male fish now being attached to her. So they have started looking into it um, to figure out why that happens and to see if there's anything that they can learn that could relate to uh, our bodies not rejecting new body parts, like uh, transplants and such. Mm -hmm. So the smallest known anglerfish is one of these kinds of fishes. The male Photocoronus spinoseps. He is about 6.2 millimeters long. That's less than a quarter of an inch. And he's also, not just the smallest of these anglerfish, the smallest known sexually mature vertebrate. The ladies are about eight times their size. Wow. Now, the female northern giant sea devils can be more than 60 times the size of the male sea devils. 60 times. Six zero. Six zero. But just because they're big doesn't mean that they're easy to find. So in 2016, a half a mile into the sea, a team returning to the surface in their submersible spotted a female angler, which they described as resplendent with bioluminescent lights. Mm. That was described in Science Magazine. And it was, and males of that species had never before been seen by humans. So that was, uh, they were coming up in their little, uh, their little under the sea tootle toot, and they spotted this brightly lit up fish, and then that little hangy-on-y male <laughs> who was just like, <sighs> So as I said, there is a great variety of anglerfish. There's monkfish. There are seven recognized uh, existing species of this genus. They've got this large head, but it's flat and it's depressed. And they are able to walk along the bottom of the sea where generally they will hide themselves among seaweed. So they'll kind of like get into some seaweed and into the sandy bottom of the sea and then kind of like shimmy their way in, Mm -hmm. shimmy down in Mm -hmm. so that they're kind of half covered and their mouth is on the top of their head. The front of their head is still covered in in dirt, but their mouth is still above. So kind of like um, like ambush animals, like hippos, have their eyes on the tops of their heads. Right. This fish has his mouth on the top of his head <sighs> so that he can still be submerged in the sand and hidden below, uh, lurking. Lurking. <laughs> but still be hunting. They're really kind of, uh, they're, they are also ambush creatures, but they are more of a wait and see what happens kind of fisher. 
these guys, instead of having the long angler fish fishing rod that comes off the front of their head, Mm -hmm. they have um, more of a, um, like an algae looking uh, that comes off the front of their head. So it just kind of looks like seaweed coming out of the front of their head. You're trying to demonstrate that with your hands and you you look like a moose. <laughs> like a moose waving his antlers. Yeah, like yeah. A waving moose antlers. <laughs> That's what he looks like. Um, and then there's hand fish. So these are benthic marine fish, and they are unusual uh, because they walk along the seafloor rather than swimming. Um, that's how they got their names. They're hand fish. They uh-huh. their fins kind of look like hands, and they mm. just kind of like and they don't swim. They just drag themselves along the bottom um the sea is a terrifying place it is she is i want no part of it what Arr, no the sea angry she is <laughs> um benthic uh, actually means the ecological region at the lowest level of a body of water mm. so that would include the sediment surface and some subsurface layers so that's where they hang out Further expanding on the styles of anglerfish are the frogfish. So they are rather lumpy looking. Um, they, I think that's the technical term. Uh, they have very large mouths. Again, uh, they awfully, often have prickly skin and they are pretty sturdy in size. So they grow to about a foot long. Frogfishes are neat because they vary in color and patterns, which change their surroundings. And generally, again, they just kind of hang out all quiet, like Mm. all camouflaged and hidden, waiting for something to come by and say, oh, that flappy bit of skin looks nice. And then they eat them. I've known a few guys like that, too. (laughs) That flappy bit of skin looks nice. I don't think that's ever a way I've been complimented. (laughs) Clearly, you're hanging out with the wrong monkfish. And then there are goosefish. They are found in the Arctic and Atlantic and Indian and Pacific Oceans. They live all over on sandy and muddy bottoms of the continental shelf and the continental slope to depths more than 3,300 feet. And like most other anglerfish, they again have the very large head and the very large mouth. And they've got long, sharp recurved teeth so they are sharp and pokey in two directions that sounds awful it's really neat and i wonder how they aren't constantly biting the inside of their mouths um because (laughs) if i can bite the inside of my mouth complaining about rain i'm sure this guy has a really hard time (laughs) nature's amazing isn't it (laughs) this goosefish is all like this pad thai is delicious but oh man i really got myself I got most of this information from National Geographic, from the New York Times, uh, Wikipedia, obviously, uh, Britannica. And thank you for joining me on this journey of anglerfish. You've got to post a picture of the deep sea angler. Oh, I will post pictures of all of them. They're all amazing, so terrifying. amazing creatures. Nightmare fuel. Hey, I want to thank those of you who have recently uh, joined us on Patreon. Supporting the Box of Oddities. We really do appreciate that. And if you're considering joining the Order of Freaks on Patreon, uh, depending upon your level of support, you can get uh, ad-free episodes, Mm -hmm. get them a day early, uh, bonus episodes. Yeah, which we're going to be dropping very shortly. And our phone number. 
as well for yeah. the Sunday uh, phone calls with the Freak Fam. Which we just released a new Sunday phone calls with the Freak Fam phone call yeah, episode. We did. A couple days ago. Yeah. And as always, we really do appreciate your support. Yes, you help the podcast grow and support our endeavors for the future. We're in the process of outlining a, a, a tour and we, we'll give you the details as that becomes a little bit more substantiveness. Sub, 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 Let's say likely. Likely would be a good word. Yeah. Anyway, looking forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. (laughs) And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2021 All rights reserved This guy reminds me of uh, Think of Super Mario Brothers 2 when you come across that boss who shoots. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science. And as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.